This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. This, Your Majesty, is Rupert, our young editor. How do you do, Rupert? How do you do? Sit down. And what's that you're reading? Karl Marx. Surely you're not a communist. Do I have to be a communist to read Karl Marx? Rupert! That's a valid answer. Well, if you're not a communist, what are you? Nothing. Nothing? I dislike all forms of government. But somebody must rule. And I don't like the word rule. Well, if we don't like the word rule, let's call it leadership. Leadership in government is political power, and political power is an official form of antagonizing the people. What magazine did you say he edits? A commentary on current events. <laughs> <laughs> Pardon me, Ambassador. But, uh... My dear young man, politics are necessary. Politics are rules imposed upon the people. In this country, rules are not imposed. They are the wish of all free citizens. Travel around a bit, then you'll see how free they are. Yes, but you didn't let me finish. They have every man in a straitjacket. And without a passport, he can't move a toe. But if you'll allow me to finish... In a free world, they violate the natural rights of every citizen. But you don't let me fully... They have become the weapons of political despots. Yes, but may I... And if you don't think as they think... You're deprived of your passport. Will you allow me to... To leave a country is like breaking out of jail. Yes, And but... to enter a country is like going through the eye of a needle. But will... Am I free to travel? Of course you're free to travel. Only with a passport. Will you allow me to say something? Only with a passport. Do animals need passports? <laughs> Have you finished? It's in Congress that in this atomic age of speed, we are shut in and shut out by passports. If you'll shut up and let somebody else talk... And free speech, does that exist? No, you've got it all. And free enterprise. We were talking of passports. Today, it's all monopoly. All right. It degrades and victimizes every individual. And where is the individual? I don't know. Lost in terror because he's made to hate instead of love. If civilization is to survive, we must combat power until the dignity and peace of man are restored. Happy Christmas, Roz. Happy Christmas, Tim. There's not much to, more we can say than just basically play the tape for this one. During the Scalarama Festival in September, we hung out with the, the cast and crew of the, of the Chaplin show that was on at the Cinema Museum, place we love in, in Oval. We took an audience, some of whom had just seen their play, round South London, looked at some Chaplin shrines, played the immigrant, talked afterwards about the immigrant... What could go wrong with that? This is going out of Christmas, and so here's us basically kind of putting the immigrant and Chaplin's life in some context. But really, I mean, what else is there to do at Christmas than than find a restored copy of a Chaplin film, be it The Kid, be it The Gold Rush, be, be it City it, Lights? Be it The Great Dictator, and, and especially the last five minutes. And, you know, settle back and just watch Chaplin's genius in action. Or alternatively, we can talk about... A good old-fashioned movie that's probably going to get shown at quite a lot of Christmases because it's by Dickie Attenborough. The, the uh, Chaplin biography. The Chaplin bio- biography, which 
I think, is surprisingly good. I mean, yes, it's a heritage movie, but it's... It's dominated by an extraordinary performance which captures Chaplin's genius. And of all people, because we sometimes forget this, the person Attenborough chose, under controversial choice in some ways, was the young Robert Downey Jr. Excuse me, miss. Do you always eat alone? Only when I'm trying to make a new acquaintance. Actually, I'm waiting for my girlfriend. Actually, I'm a motion picture director, and I'm forming a new company with Bronco Billy over there. And you're looking for a new leading lady. Lucky me. Obviously, you are an actress, Miss. Provence. Sorry, just a secretary. Don't be sorry. I'm auditioning for actresses who aren't actresses. Well, if you're on the lookout for untalented actresses who aren't actresses. And you couldn't do better than me. Worse than me. Don't you want to know who I am? I have no interest whatsoever in who you are. Mr. Chaplin. And we forget how good Robert Downey Jr. is because he's actually very good when he's being an action hero. He's wonderful in the crime comedy Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. In Chaplin, he's a genius. He's he's so good it hurts. The only problem is that when he's playing Chaplin in old age, he's wearing a makeup job that doesn't always look very good. It would have been better just to just to let the acting yeah, convey just, the fact that he was an old guy at that point. Yeah, but it's because Downey Jr. has this intense physicality. It's what makes him a good action hero, and this intense vulnerability. Um that he's a very a nakedly honest actor. And his chaplain, he captures the slight seediness of Chaplin. He captures the fact... It's not that Chaplin was a great mover or a great dancer. It's just that he thought of things to do with his body that other people didn't think of. Here's the thing about Robert Downey Jr. I mean, I... So I completely agree with you. I mean, he's he's my guy, Tony Stark. He is he is Tony Stark. And the whole point about Tony Stark and why he was genius casting is one, he looks like Tony Stark. Two, uh, Tony Stark is the one of the two Marvel superheroes who is a recovering alcoholic, and a lot of the time at his worst. And Tony Stark is often a very deeply morally ambiguous character. You do recall when he's being doing bad things, that he is a dry drunk. And also his fantastic black exploitative turn in Tropic Thunder, which is, uh, in my view, one of the modern classics of comedy. I could watch that film and specifically his turn in that all day long, quite happily. Yeah. He's just, he's splendid. And his deeply revisionist Holmes. I mean... Those Holmes films are so good. Yeah, you go, Guy Ritchie? Got good again. I took forever to watch them because I was just so ill-disposed towards Guy Ritchie. And uh, he's just hit everyone a blinder. Those two home films. The Man from Uncle. Nobody went to go and see yes, it. lovely I film. I love The Man from Uncle. Yeah, gorgeous film that Beautiful. looks perfect. Um, but no, I mean... Man the, from Uncle. Yeah, the, <laughs> the Holmes films, of course, as well as Downey Jr., have, well, the incredible chemistry with Jude Law. 
But this will surprise you. There is a da- Robert Downey Jr. film on our Scala map of films on the London Underground. Ross yeah. Caveney, do you know which Robert Downey Jr. film is on the Scala map? And no, I do not that? know. The Singing Detective. Of course. Because the television show was filmed at, e- at Ealing Studios by the BBC, but we kind of made a decision, which is that TV, we're not quite sure if it goes on. Maybe the knowledge mm-hmm. might go on, because it's probably been on an NFT. But I bet, actually, the... the Gambon uh, singing detective, the Joanna Wa- Joanne Wally Kilmer singing detective, the TV original probably has been on the NFT at some point, but I don't think it counts, so I put the film on. But that's an example of Robert Downey Jr. playing one of the great vulnerable roles, this sort of writer who can't move in bed because his entire body is covered with... with Suppuration, s- messiness. Eczema and psoriasis. But it's not very good. And if you're going to uh, cast anybody... Who could do that cinematically? It would be Robert Downey Jr. But that's the thing about the adaptations of Dennis Potter is also the the Pennies from Heaven film. Steve Steve Martin. I love Steve Martin. He's no Bob Hoskins. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, great television doesn't necessarily adapt into great film. I mean, there are good films based on the same source material as good television. I mean, though the Anak Guinness television show series of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is the classic. The Gary Oldman film is more than respectable, which manages to condense the entire plot into considerably less space. Still, respectable little film, but that's because it's not an adaptation of a television show, it's the adaptation of the same material as a television show. Whereas Potter... Potter was a television man to his bones. So is it the reason that Robert Downey Jr. is so good in the Richard Attenborough Chaplin, which is otherwise not a great film? It's an okay film. It's It's an okay film. He's good in it. There's an awful lot of wonderful bit part playing in it. I mean, Attenborough's eye to casting has always been good. Hmm. And he got John Thor to play Fred Carno. So good. He got Dan Aykroyd, an actual Hollywood star, to play Max Sennett. And it's one of the best things and, and Aykroyd's and done Dan in Dan Aykroyd always does these, these wonderful cameos where he's on screen for two or three minutes, but he steals the movie. I mean, he's the same in that otherwise uh, underwhelming Stephen Fry, Bright Young, Bright Young Things film. Yeah. As Lord Beaverbrook. Yeah, but he's very good as... Um, he, you know, Marissa Tomei is very good as, uh, uh, as, as Mabel, Max Sennett's friend, hmm. person... Mabel... Girl Friday, yeah. Yeah. But what was her surname? I can't remember either. Either. Look it up on IMDb. Yeah. But the actress who plays Paulette Goddard is so good. Mm. Oh, and of course, there are one or two things that were totally obvious and to- because they were totally right, like Kevin Klein as Douglas Fairbanks. Such a terrific piece of casting. It really is. Because, you know, who doesn't love Douglas Fairbanks? Who doesn't love Kevin Klein? Call this one out. Don't have to. I'm winning. Ah. Yeah. And who's this fellow escorting? Why, Mildred Harris. That intellectual giant of 16 who still sucks a thumb. That's very funny. Then why aren't you laughing? No. Perhaps because I'm marrying her. She's really not that bad. Really not that bad. Spoken like a man desperately in love. 
Uh, they rather more than the person who plays Mary Pickford or America's Sweetheart. And there's that lovely bit where Fairbanks is messing around, being physical, swinging on a wooden structure, which is like a, a jungle gym or something. You can't work out where he is or what he's doing. And it turns out he and Chaplin are talking round the back of the Hollywood, Hollywoodland sign. <laughs> and it's actually the... The reason it looks new is that it's just gone up. It's just that Attenborough does have this problem as a director and, and, and screenwriter, which is no one's ever told him that less is more. Mm. There are a lot of scenes which go on five minutes more than the two that would have made the point. Um, we get far too much of the paternity trial. Mm. I mean, OK, it lets James Wood do a great unsympathetic turn. Another great bit, bit part. Mm. Oh, I could have done without Sir Anthony Hopkins being an imaginary biographer. Well... Without wishing to take anything away from Sir Anthony Hopkins, that is frequently the case when he makes these uh, uh, supporting roles. Yeah. Not, I'm not going to say Zorro, I'm just going to heavily imply it. Yes. To draw this, this um, very interesting discussion about the Attenborough film to, to um, its logical conclusion, I put it to you, Roz, that what is so good about Robert Downey Jr. is both his physicality and his vulnerability, because that is, that's the essence of Chaplin. Yes. But Chaplin made us feel... It's partly because he could always access that scared child who was dragged off to, to, to the workhouse. He could always access that scared young man who was turned down by the first woman he fell in love with and spent the rest of his life searching for her. I mean, because she died. Hmm. And yeah, in this rather unseemly pursuit of... Not ever younger women, but women who, relative to him, were younger. Yes, because he, because he was getting older, but his memory of, of the woman he lost always stayed the same age. Yes, until he met Una. I mean, it's, it's why he and Pollock Goddard, who was a grown-up and an equal, didn't work out, though they, after they ceased to be husband and wife, they stayed great friends. Mm. And she and her eventual husband went and lived in Switzerland near him and Una. Mm. So it's not like that one ended badly. Hmm. It's just it wasn't. But Una somehow managed to have that youth, that perpetual youthfulness. Hmm. And he stayed in love with her when she, when she got older. And so there is a happy ending as well. Hmm. And it's a happy ending that, you know, he maybe didn't deserve because he didn't treat every, every one of those women well. But Downey Jr. gets the fact that Chaplin is imperfect and flawed, partly because he is someone who can access his own flaws. Mm. Um, and, and of course, may I? Just I, a little I, bit I of... I wish you would. Smile, though your heart is aching. Smile, even though it's breaking. When there are clouds in the sky, you'll get by. It's a great song, and it's a great song because even people like me with no voice can make a decent f uh, fist of it. Au contraire. Smile. And I can't remember the way in the heart <laughs> of sadness. Smile. And a spark of gladness. 
the sun will still come shining through if you just smile. See, that was a really bad note, that smile. <laughs> but I think having now we've spent quite a lot of time in Chaplin's early haunts in Kennington, um, that sort of bittersweet, slightly off-note feeling about his early life and his time in the workhouse certainly was what we picked up on. And um, that's probably enough from us in the studio but here is us at the workhouse that Chaplin was in as a small boy which of course now is the wonderful cinema museum in Oval which you should always make donations to because it's not properly funded or indeed funded at all (laughs) and while we were at the cinema museum we spoke to the author of the play Gillian Plowman and one of the actors David Flint who plays Charlie Chaplin when he's in his 70s This map, which is kind of what our radio show is about, is putting films together with tube stops. So I suppose what's particularly interesting to us is having written this play about Charlie Chaplin. What's the connection to this building, the Cinema Museum, and this area? And how, how do you feel about this area, having spent so much time in, in Chaplin's life and his in his head? Yes, yes, I have. I've read all the books, nearly all the books that have ever been written about Chaplin. But I come from a small seaside town called Selsey, Selseyville right. in West Sussex. Yes, I'm from Brighton, and you're from Brighton. Yeah. And um, there's a, in, in 1913, it was a very small town, 500 people, but they they built a wonderful theatre there. And this theatre then became, it fell into misuse in the 60s, 1960s, and since then it's been used as a builder's yard. So a couple of years ago we did a, we decided to do a play about the trenches because it was the centenary of World right. War One. In the process of cleaning out this 
derelict building, we found all sorts of Chaplin memorabilia. So really? the builder who owned it was very keen on Chaplin. And he actually, his wife had a little ice cream store, which was called Chaplin's, just on the side of the building. So looking for another centenary thing to hang to hang almost sort of publicity for our little town and our little theatre. We just, we just, I realised that 1915 was the centenary of the birth of the little tramp, you know, that mm-hmm. little tramp persona that Chaplin had. Right. So we put a play on there in our little town, Selzyville, and Martin, who um, is the co-founder of this cinema museum, about which so much of it is Chaplin, came to see it because he heard about it and he said please bring it to the cinema museum and do it here so we've all traipsed up from Selzy we've all found accommodation with friends of the museum so we've you know we're accommodated all around the place and that's why we brought it here but we also fell in love with this building when we first came to see it last beginning of the year in January absolutely fell in love with the building and what Martin and Ronald are doing with it, all the memorabilia that they've collected mm-hmm. and so that's why we're doing it here really put, put Charlie Chaplin back in this building which was the old workhouse that he came to all those years ago when he was a little boy of five. Yeah. So when one reads up <laughs> accounts of what the Lambeth workhouse was like when he, he wasn't here for very long he was here for, for I think about six seven months yes. but the regime here sounds as if it was particularly unpleasant that there were uh, wood, there were sheds outside for sorting through wood scraps and also oakum, which is uh, taking old bits of hemp or jute rope yes. and picking all the fibres off and then that mm. would be used mostly and for... And that really messes up your hands. Yes, and um, you breathe them in too, yes. don't you? So you, you get sort of a fibrosis, yes. And, and Dickens uh, mentioned specifically... Uh, sorting oakum in Oliver Twist as one of the jobs that the children have got. Yes. So this building is yes. very architecturally a very beautiful building, but rather like Chaplin's life when he was in South London, its its history is quite grim. It is mm. absolutely. He had a terrible childhood, really. But I think one of the, the one of the points we're trying to make to the people of this area, to the children who live in this area, because we've got children's matinees, really, is that that you can rise from poverty and you can rise from those circumstances which you're in as a child and make good, if you like. So his was probably one of the most famous rags-to-riches stories, but everybody can do it with that determination and with that sort of self-confidence. And he never never forgot. I mean, there's that wonderful sequence in The Kid where he runs across the rooftops to rescue the kid. Oh, gosh, we do that. We show that sequence. And the children love that sequence. They love that bit. We show a little montage of the kid when he finds the baby and then eventually he rescues the kid from the... Um, from the orphanage van. Yeah. Oh, they love it. It's just four minutes. Yeah. And of course, it's part of kids today will just say, oh, he's doing parkour. Yes, yes, yes. Because yes. he is. Yes, yes, yes. So, I mean, so that's why we're here. Mm-hmm. And we've fallen in love with this place. We've fallen in love with Martin and Ronald. And we realise that, you know, there's no public money coming into this museum. They're struggling, really. 
they're struggling to keep it warm, to keep it lit. But they have, it is such an, an amazing place. And now that we've done this play, a lot of people are coming back and they're sending students back to use it as a resource. Yes. So hopefully it will become more well-known and, and get some more support, really. Although it does run some wonderful... If there's an events booklet, then it runs all sorts of wonderful mm. events in the museum, mm. yes. But it's been a privilege for us to be here. So we're after um, your wonderful show, uh, we're going to walk with people from this building that was yes, the workhouse yes. to one of Chaplin's boyhood homes which is just down the road about 10 minutes away and we're going to show the immigrants which I know is also in your show yes um, we have just a four minute excerpt it's a, a, almost 100 years since that film was made in 1917 so yes. it's a centenary of that film yeah. and I spend a lot of time in uh, India yes. um, my, uh, my other half's a film historian from India yes. now studying here um, Chaplin is still beloved, but he's a preeminent figure in cinema. He's taken very seriously yeah. all around the world. Absolutely. A hundred years on, we're still talking about him. Yes, what? and still laughing at him mm. and crying too. Yeah. Well, he's, he's one of the authentically funny yes. performers. Yes. Partly, partly because... It's about human solidarity and yes. and, and, and and about and the, the, oh, resisting authority. Yes. He's one of the great trickster oh, figures. Oh yes, cocking a snook. Yes. yes, but there is there is a little phrase: comedy is a serious business. Yes, and that's that's what it is. We we, we do we do no gags. We do we don't send anything up. It's all serious business. Yes. and that's where comedy comes from. Well, uh, so I've just watched you perform as an older chaplain. Yes, Ch- Chaplain in repose. Yeah. And uh, shortly after this, we're going to wander to Chaplin's boyhood home. Yes. In yes. about half an hour. Yeah. Um, now, most of you, you've come up from the south coast for the, for the That's show. That's right, up from Selsey in yes, Sussex, yeah. yeah. I'm from Brighton. Oh, right. Yeah. So, south London to us, this part of London, do we have any kind of historical purchase? Can we look around at the buildings or... I mean, we haven't really got workhouses as such still standing in Sussex, well, like this building. Absolutely. And coming to Charlie Chaplin's home in Kennington it has great resonance for us. We started this project uh, over a year ago uh, to help re-establish an old music hall on the south coast in Selsey. It was one that had been built in the 1900s and was part of the Southern Circuit. Now, it wasn't beyond the imagination that Charlie Chaplin or somebody like that would have been at... Uh, had visited that particular um, uh, music hall and so Charlie Chaplin at the pavilion it was called was born the the fact that we moved up here was quite serendipitous because one of the local residents to Kennington happened to come and see that they have another home in uh, Selsey and they also said well I think it would be really good to put it on at the um, the old Lambeth Workhouse, the now Cinema Museum, because it has that resonance. It was a place where Sid and Charlie were incarcerated as young children. It was a place where Hannah Chaplin would have known. And the place that we're actually acting now, the, the, the 
the performance space is the old uh, chapel of the workhouse in the master's house so that had a great resonance now during my time here I've had a chance to walk around to the various sites of Chaplin's childhood St Mary's Church St Mark's Church and, and various other sites where the blue plaque is in Meckley Road mm. etc mm. and on the Kennington Road as well mm. I tried to look for Pownall Terrace but it's not there anymore um, and um, all that has made it very real to me and also very emotional to play the part as well thinking that I'm saying words that could have been attributed to Charlie but also in the place where he might have said them I spent a lot of time the last couple of years in India Yeah. and I became uh, friends in the last year of his life with the guy who saved most of India's films the guy oh, right, yeah. Nair. Yeah. Um, Chaplin is still very highly regarded as a filmmaker yeah. everywhere and beloved around the world as, mm. a, as a, a screen presence. Mm. India arguably has a kind of unique affection for him. Yes. That, for example, if you go into Indian bookshops, you will still find box sets of Chaplin films and they are still yes. shifting units. Yeah. He's still popular yeah. and now the films have been restored. Why is it 100 years we're still, uh, later we're still talking about him? I think it's because the films that he made back in 1915 when he effectively was the most famous man in the world um, were so profound, so well done that they have lasted um, over 100 years now it's, you know, 2016 um, as we say in the play you know, he did something then that was so remarkable that it will last over 100 years mm, there yeah. are films which rely on the truth if you watch them and you watch the facial expression, it's not acting. He, he tried to get to the truth of the situation. He made the little tramp as human as he possibly could so that you could see both the tragic and the comic sides of life, counterpointing each one to, to heighten the dramatic effect. And I think that that has a resonance today. And like any genius, like Shakespeare, when he first started writing his play, he came upon a new medium. Um, Shakespeare it was the stages like the Globe and, and the theatre and with uh, Charlie Chaplin he just happened to be along when the great musicals of the time were turning into the film theatres the Nickelodeons um, where people went to watch five minute shows and gained because they couldn't read because this was in America they couldn't read English they gained immediate access to American life um, it provided with them what they what seemed to be at the time to be a profound realism although the actors move faster than in real life what has it been like for you as a cast working in a building where you knew that not all that long ago 100 years ago kids were taking bits of old rope and picking apart the fibers and that would be used as cool it's very emotional ships. it's very emotional yeah. i think i think the also to see the the renovation of the elephant castle around this area and yet still coming across old buildings which were I mean like the library down by mm -hmm. Kennington Cross which would have been there when Charlie was alive mm -hmm. you know 1889 mm -hmm. uh, I believe that building was was erected then to see uh, St Mark's Church which he used as part of the set for the uh, opening uh, highlights of uh, the opening scenes of uh, City Lights mm -hmm. uh, to see I think it's St Mary's Church over here where he walked Hetty Kelly home I mean it's absolutely profoundly emotional it gives you a connection with Charlie Chaplin thank you very much my pleasure thank you.
what you're talking about is five-year-old kids working all day picking rope apart till their hands bled till they got splinters in their hands till they got splinters in their lungs and coughed and this was what they deserved for being poor and of course if you've got a bright sassy kid like Chaplin he was always in trouble there's a story he tells about which those of you that saw the show will know about that he wasn't allowed to have a Christmas present one year because he was a bad influence because he kept the other kids awake all night telling them stories yeah it was a red apple wasn't it, it he was, was denied apple. a red apple he was punished for being cheerful by, by for entertaining the other kids for having imagination by being deprived of Christmas presents because it was for his own good who can't have children like that growing up thinking they're special because I mean society will fall apart he wasn't in the workhouse he was in the workhouse for various short periods because his mother was in and out of the asylum and later on we'll go from here to one of the houses where we know they lived it's actually quite a nice house it wasn't all misery and of course he, his bro- first his brother and then he escaped onto the halls I mean Charlie Chaplin managed to blag his way into the music halls when he was ten or something I mean he'd already appeared when he was five because his mother broke down again as you'll know if you saw the play or if you've seen the Attenborough film his mother literally had a psychotic break while actually singing on stage and got booed off stage and the five-year-old Charlie Chaplin went on and finished her song for her and retrieved the day I mean it's one of those I see no reason to doubt it happened but also it's one of those ah, it doesn't matter, print the legend Um, but he never forgot I mean again if you've seen the Attenborough film or if you saw the play this afternoon there's this lovely little film he made with uh, Jackie Coogan as the kid where the tramp finds this baby and is that's been abandoned in the street in the street by thieves who sold the limousine into which it's the, the kid's mother had put it and he somehow looks after the kid he improvises a a, 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 a pot of milk with a spout and, an, and a nipple that the, the kid can tip into it and the kid grows up and the kid helps him with petty crime um, They, you know, the kid breaks windows and he comes along and fixes them and eventually of course the authorities catch on when the kid's five and take the kid away and he runs after the van along the rooftops yeah it's a sequence in which Charlie Chaplin invented parkour apparently <laughs> um, and and oh it's it, it's that wonderful way that he can say what he means and be funny and break your heart at the same time because one of the reasons he's one of the great clowns is that he's one of the great poetic truth tellers he gets to the nub of the situation people sometimes say oh he's a great dancer no he's not 
what he did was put his body at the service of that insightful mind and that real sense of what's important. Um, sorry, I'm getting all emotional. Take it away, Tim. Yeah, I mean, well, I was too, and I, I was watching the kid, and you know, <laughs> if you haven't watched Charles Chaplin's films, watch Charles Chaplin's films. Uh, we did an interview that was on our show earlier in the week, and we talked to a film producer, Steve Woolley. He's produced Mona Lisa and the Company of Wolves. And all, all of Neil Jordan's All of Neil Jordan's films. And he made a really interesting point to us about cinema and about the kind of cult cinema, like the Scarlet Film Club, which is what this film festival is named after, which he said really, you know, the Scarlet Film Club at King's Cross and cinemas were important, but what's really important is the movies. Of course, yeah. Um, obviously, we all know Chaplin is the actor, and it's fantastic. But as a person, what was it? And I know a few people in showbiz yeah. would not cross the rule if yep. he was in there yep. to speak to him. Absolutely. In some ways, yeah, it was impossible. Because yeah. he was a perfectionist, and perfectionists are very often impossible. But not only that, these few people who I've spoken to, where this charities set up? He's a local boy. I'm a local boy. Okay. Yeah. I've heard that he would. See, you don't know. Behind the scenes, he might have given money to charities left, right, and centre. But there's nothing that I've read about where he donated money to this area. I'm a local boy just across the way. Right? I knew Yellowstone Castle before this one. But what I'm saying is, as a, as a Charlie Chapman, he was a genius. But as a person, yeah. I don't know many stories to say that well, he was a warm person. Maybe it was his background, I don't know. Well, I, uh, there's a very good Thames TV series from 1980, which you get on DVD, called The Unknown Chaplin, where they got hold of rushes from a lot of Chaplin's early films and analysed his working method. And one of the directors of it was a guy called Kevin Brownlow. I very warmly recommend this book if you're interested in Chaplin history. There are hundreds of Chaplin biographies and hundreds of of books and works analysing his films but Kevin Brownlow's book is unique in actually trying to understand Chaplin as a filmmaker, as an artist and I think it's probably, as this gentleman's saying as a filmmaker and artist, you get the good Charlie Charlie the bloke something else um, So you know you've been there that road then So I've, got, I've, picked out, I've picked out two quotes from Brownlow's book because Brownlow in 1979-80 he interviewed people that had known Charlie Chaplin uh, in Hollywood so I picked out some quotes from this book, which I think are illustrative exactly what our friend here is saying, which is that Charles Chaplin is very interesting as an artist and as a filmmaker. As a human being, he's quite problematic. And I think, think about it, we've all got here... To, I mean, I'm just amazed at how many people have turned up. Thank you very much, by the way. That, that we're all interested in Charlie Chaplin, but who is Charlie Chaplin? And we're walking around. He was in that building. He was miserable. He was miserable in there. And he was in that workhouse. It was not a good time. He was not happy. When he was walking the same walk that we're about to take, he was not happy. There was a period in his life when his mother, Hannah, had again been incarcerated. She had syphilis and malnutrition. And that, that presented to doctors at the time as, as mental illness. Now, at least the malnutrition would be treatable and the treatment for syphilis would be better. And Chaplin found himself living on the streets around here for a couple of days, living out of bins. When you watch the kid and you watch the bit of him uh, finding the kid on the pavement and going through the bins, that literally happened, and it happened around here. 
So he had a very, very tough upbringing, and that, that made him a tough guy. When he became wealthy, I've heard stories that when people went to his home in America, they was eating off of gold-plated plates. They was eating off... You know, he had luxury school all around him. He was from one extreme to the other. That's a very good way of putting big it. Big time, you know, big time. Not well, poor, poor. He was well, honest. what happens when someone who's had extremes of deprivation... They go wild, yeah. Well, except he didn't go wild. He, did, 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 was he a drunk? No. Did he use drugs? No. In, in terms of the Hollywood of that period, which is near of total excess, he was comparatively restrained. Yeah. And, remember... In a lot of issues, his heart was in the right place. We're talking a man that was endlessly persecuted by J. Edgar Hoover and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. He was thrown out of America for being a, quote, a fellow traveller. Why? Because he was what the American right called a premature anti-fascist. I mean, one of the things it's important people go and look at again is actually not one of his silent films. It's it's one of his talk, few talkies. It's the Great Dictator, it, yeah. which, okay, it was made before the worst things had happened. It was made before the war or started before the war, and so he regards Hitler and Mussolini as essentially unpleasant comic characters, like yeah. his bullies. He plays both Hitler and a Jewish tailor who escapes from him imagines to impersonate him. And there's a classic sequence of the dictator getting himself, be, being alone and sending everyone out of the room and taking a globe of the world. Yeah. And it's a balloon. And he plays games with it and he tosses it in the air and eventually, of course, he bursts it and looks sad. Where would you say he was born? He was born He's meant to have been born in Southwark. He reckoned he was born in Southwark. There's another great story connected with that. And I've come across it a few years ago. Somebody had a letter somewhere in a drawer. They just kept it there, yeah. And the story was that he was born in the gypsy environment a little way mm. out of London. Have you ever come across that story? It's news to me. Yeah, it's almost yeah. certainly not true. But so you've heard it. Because we know that we, we well, we, we do know who his father was. We but know his father was a musical singer yeah. who died of the drink. I mean, but he, have you heard that story? Well, the part of that story which rings true, of course, is the fact that Charles Chaplin, actually the guy, if you met him in Hollywood, he had white hair and brown skin. He wasn't a light-skinned, dark-haired guy because that was an act. But, of course, one of the reasons why Chaplin's been so popular all around the world is he looks like a Panjara. He looks like a Roma person. Mm. He looks like a gypsy. It could be true. So, right, here are two quotes, and then we'll we'll get moving and go to where... um, to, to Chaplin's house. But I think these two quotes are quite illustrative of what we're talking about, which is this tension between Chaplin, the artist, Chaplin the genius, and Chaplin, the actual geezer, the guy who partly grew up in this this building which is very nice now but when he lived here it was pretty grim so this is a quote from a, it was a, surrounded by sheds these the sheds were where they they uh, sorted the oakum and also bits of wood there were the bomb sizes, wasn't they all around here that's right big time mm. 
So this is a quote from a, a chap who ended up working with Chaplin in Hollywood, but he came from London. It's called Ivor Montague. And Kevin Brantley describes him in the book as a kind of jolly big roly-poly Stalinist. He was just a very sort of early uh, adopter of the, of the Soviet Union being a good thing. And that partly explains the start of this quote, why, why he knew Wells and George Bernard Shaw. It wasn't until I went to Hollywood in 1929 that I met Charlie. Of course, one of my ideals was to meet him. I knew both George Bernard Shaw and H.G. Wells, and among the introductions I collected were two from them. As soon as I got out to Hollywood, I took them along to Charlie's studio, and there I met Alf Reeves, studio manager. I recognised from the voice that he came from just the part of Brixton that my wife was born in. Of course, people aren't from London. Brixton's another part of South London. I recognised from the voice that he came from uh, just the part of Brixton that my wife was born in. And I brought in Camberwell and Denmark Hill to the conversation. And this made us such bosom pals that he said he would pass the introductions directly to Charlie. No doubt I would be seeing him immediately, but this didn't happen. So he goes on to explain that he hangs around the studio to try and see Chaplin and he can't see Chaplin. Eventually he gets an invitation to go to Chaplin's place where Chaplin's holding some tennis parties. He says Charlie was a very good tennis player. He seemed to be able to attain any skill he wanted. One sees that kind of thing from time to time in the films. Take, for example, the gold rush. That dance with the rolls in it in itself is a marvellous feat of dexterity that he taught himself. I mean, he had coaches and things, but it was his willpower that made him reach the standard at tennis that he attained. He used to have a friendly rivalry with Douglas Fairbanks. Of course, Douglas Fairbanks, he, uh, he toured around America raising money for Liberty Bonds in World War I and eventually uh, went on to form United Artists with Mary Pickford. He used to have a friendly rivalry with Douglas Fairbank because anything that Douglas did, running the, athle- uh, the athletic line, playing tennis, Charlie immediately took up and played it until he could do, do it better than Douglas. It was only when Douglas got to golf that Charlie said he wouldn't follow him. Something like hairdressing, which after all is a great skill, he certainly didn't acquire merely for the great dictator. When we went to stay with him, as we did on our last weekend in Hollywood, he gave my wife the most marvellous haircut she's ever had. He certainly mastered um, any skill that he set out to master. Charlie had an absolute insatiable curiosity. In this he corresponded to many other people I've met, eminent in their field, science, art, writing, whatever it may be. The one thing in common with them is an avidity in knowing everything they possibly can about anything, in case it may come in useful to them in their field. Charlie was that sort of creative artist. When he met people, he was an observer as well as an actor. Afterwards, he would not make fun of them, but he would describe everything, and you can see clearly what he got out of it. I'm quite sure that every new experience, every society lion that wanted to visit him was somebody who was added to the gallery. I've got another quote, and then we'll get on our way. This is from Virginia Cheryl, who people may recognise that name because she's the blind girl in City Lights. She had no previous acting experience, uh, and one of his mates at the studio had seen her in a hotel lobby and said, oh, you know, maybe she'd be quite good in your films. Uh, And she ended up not only being in the film and under contract to Chaplin, but she found herself part of this long and laborious process of making City Lights. So she's talking about uh, what working at the studio for Chaplin was like. The company had to be there, ready to work, made up at nine o'clock. But Charlie came in when he felt like it. If there was no tennis going, or it wasn't raining, then he might uh, might come in every day for months and months. We'd never know. 
because one waited for hours sometimes, for days, sometimes for months, virtually three or four months, and Charlie wouldn't come to the studio. Occasionally we'd call the house and ask if he'd left. That was the tactful way to put it. And if we were told he was playing tennis or something, we knew it was safe to go home. But we had no restaurant in the studio and nothing to do. I simply sat in my dressing room and read books, knitted or did needlepoint and was generally bored. I often tried to sneak out of the studio until I was caught. I'd been with a beau for lunch and I was ten minutes late, thinking he wasn't coming. But he came the next day. After that, I was never allowed to leave the studio in the morning. I lunched every day after that in the bungalow with Charlie and Henry Bergman with visitors. Usually I was the only girl, but it was interesting and he had a very good cook. Charlie adored entertaining, and if there was a magician present, he was a musician. If there was a writer present, he was a writer. He told us of his childhood, going to the park and seeing the pretty children. He remembered colours, and he said they were also beautifully dressed in pink and blue and yellow with their nannies. He seemed, it seemed almost as if he were talking about toys that he couldn't afford to have. Think about the red apple that he was denied at Christmas in this building. He told us that he was very poor and he went to some school for poor children and it was terribly cold and they tore chairs apart and burned them on the bathroom floor. He was punished for that. Those are the kind of things that happened to him in that building. Because I make these, these radio programmes and I'm recording what I'm saying now. I'm always aware not only of what I can see, but what I can hear. And as we're moving away from this very busy road and the 21st century and modernity, and yes, we can see another quite modern building. But also, in this quiet little street, in this modest little street, they built glass. Perhaps we can also grasp a little bit of the past, can we reach back more than a hundred years? Can we imagine Chaplin's actual life? Not the guy in the cinema, not the guy on the screen. That little boy played here with his brother. We don't know what was on there, but those nights when he was stuck on his own, he had no one looking after him, his dad had died at 38 from, from drink, from cirrhosis. As a young man, before all that wealth and fame, wandered down this street, remembering living in that building, poked around the bins, tried to find some food. We know he came back and, and filmed around here. Because, uh, one of the local churches, he, he, came, he came over and filmed the sequence of City Lights. So I am now going to leave you momentarily in the spirit of showmanship so we can watch a film hand the microphone to my, my colleague Ros Caveney, who will now talk well, here it is. in an entertaining way oh, ha, ha. About, about Meffley Street. Well, it's Meffley Street, and if you see, there is the blue plaque. And that, um, I, they won't have had more than a, a, a room or two rooms at the most, but this was a street where, where he lived. And He'll have, he'll have played on those stairs. And that's actually quite moving. You know, it wasn't the worst kind of building. It wasn't horrible slums. It was just poor, poor housing for poor people. And 
you'd have had four or five families in that one building probably maybe only a couple but and it's his life wasn't apart when he wasn't in the workhouse his life was hanging out with his mother who does seem to be one of the great influences on his life uh, he always said that she taught him a lot about the importance of comedy and tragedy being seen together and happiness and sadness going together. If there's a bit of sweet quality, quality in most of the best of his work, that's something he always said he owed to her, and I see no reason to doubt that that's true. And that's where he learned it. So that's why this is a... We always talk, when we're doing these shows, about how cinema, as opposed to movies you watch on your phone or your computer, how seeing seeing films in cinemas is a collective experience. It's It's got something slightly holy about it. And that means there are places that are dedicated to the knowledge you get from films. And one of the bits of knowledge you get from films... I mean, at the end of one of the things some of us saw in the in the play there's this lovely bit where he's given up the girl who in that instance is Ed, Edna Perviance the one of his leading one of his leading ladies whom he never had a, an affair with um or married or both and he hands her over to her sweetheart because you know, she doesn't love him and he is sad and he walks away dejectedly and he's the little tramp and he, as he walks down the road suddenly the spring comes into his steps and he stops dragging his feet and he's suddenly using the cane jauntily and that's the thing about Chaplin it's about the laughter that comes when you're on the brink of tears anyway I think Tim's probably set up by now so let's wander back and we'll get a good example of that. You bring it all to light. You paint oh. the picture. Oh, thank you. And The Immigrant is very interesting because it's one where we know quite a lot about his working method. It started off as a short about um, the tramp suddenly in funds going into a cafe and having problems with the waiter and seeing a pretty girl and chatting her up and buying her a meal and then realising that the money isn't is, 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 a, is a dud and being bullied by the waiter and then luckily they're saved by a rich artist who wants to paint her. But the point is, that little film, he suddenly asked himself the Well, first of all, he sacked the original waiter because the waiter wasn't menacing enough and then uh, he decided oh the real story is they've met before um, they, well, how do they know each other why you know, it's not just a casual pickup it's actually an existing relationship where they found each other again in the streets of New York and that's why it's about immigration and about meeting on the liner and that's what we'll see
introduce your own, your very own, Mr. Charles Chaplin, local boy, who's done very well for himself. Yeah. So this I'm really surprised. I thought about four or five people would turn up. So I'm really amazed so many people have come along. And uh, thank you for being part of our little walk. Um, no one's keeping a record. You know, well, there's a record of this, but, you know, we're not making a record. But I wonder, has one of Chaplin's films been shown so near to somewhere Chaplin actually knew, this street? I don't know. So it's been a, a lovely thing to share this with all of you. And um, thank you very much for sharing it with us. And this, uh, this programme's going out at uh, Christmas on Residence FM so we just it's a bit early to wish everyone a happy Christmas when you hear it we'll be saying happy Christmas and it will be true <laughs> thank you so much for turning up and go in peace and like Charles Chaplin move freely yes. thank you I'm sorry I don't want to be a, an emperor that's not my business I don't want to rule or conquer anyone. I should like to help everyone if possible. Jew, Gentile, black man, white. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. We don't want to hate and despise one another. In this world, there's room for everyone, and the good earth is rich and can provide for everyone. The way of life can be free and beautiful, but we have lost the way. Greed has poisoned men's souls, has barricaded the world with hate, has goose-stepped us into misery and bloodshed. We have developed speed, but we have shut ourselves in. Machinery that gives abundance has left us in want. Our knowledge has made us cynical, our cleverness hard and unkind. We think too much and feel too little. More than machinery, we need humanity. More than cleverness, we need kindness and gentleness. Without these qualities, life will be violent, and all will be lost. The aeroplane and the radio have brought us closer together. The very nature of these inventions cries out for the goodness in men, cries out for universal brotherhood, for the unity of us all. Even now, my voice is reaching millions throughout the world, millions of despairing men, women, and little children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't give yourselves to brutes. Men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, Tell you what to do, what to think, and what to feel? Who drill you, diet you, treat you like cattle, use you as cannon fodder? Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men, with machine minds and machine hearts. You are not machines, you are not cattle, you are men. You have the love of humanity in your hearts. You don't hate, only the unloved hate, the unloved and the unnatural. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke it is written, the kingdom of God is within man, not one man nor a group of men, but in all men, in you, you the people have the power, the power to create machines, the power to create happiness. You the people have the power to make this life free and beautiful, to make this life a wonderful adventure. Then in the name of democracy, let us use that power, let us all unite, let us fight for a new world, a decent world that will give men a chance to work, that will give youth a future and old age a security. 
by the promise of these things, brutes have risen to power. But they lie. They do not fulfill that promise. They never will. Dictators free themselves, but they enslave the people. Now let us fight to fulfill that promise. Let us fight to free the world, to do away with national barriers, to do away with greed, with hate and intolerance. Let us fight for a world of reason, a world where science and progress will lead to all men's happiness. This has been Music for Films on ResonanceFM.com and ResonanceFM 104.4 in London. It's a Beekeeper's production and you can also find extended versions of all of our shows on thebeekeepersoronword.com. With gladness, hide every trace of sadness. Although a cheer may be ever so near, that's the time you must keep on trying. Smile, what's the use of crying? Your man love comes shining sure. If you should smile when your heart is aching, smile, even though it's breaking your wind. There are clouds in the sky who get by If you smile, chew your fears and sorrow Smile, and maybe tomorrow You'll find a love them shining sure If you choose our show of uh, Charlie Chaplin's The Immigrant and you heard playing out from that into what this is which is our extended podcast more music for films you heard the peddlers performing mm. smile now the peddlers just to because I think as sometimes happens with these shows we've kind of said everything there is to say about Charles Chaplin's The Immigrant yes it's a fairly exhaustive discussion of quite a short film um, but Smile, mm. which we also talked about in the show, lovely song, and the Peddlers' cover of it is a lovely cover. Now, the Peddlers are a very interesting band in relation to something we often talk about on Music for Films, which is films sometimes get forgotten or TV shows get forgotten, but a song can either live on from a film or it can have its own life, mm-hmm. and then it can come back in some other form. The Peddlers did a very good cover of on a clear day 
On a clear, clear day. The Barbara Streisand musical about reincarnation. On a clear day, you can see forever. So, um, actually, no, sod it. This is the podcast. Let's not just talk about it. Let's listen now to the Peddler's cover of On On a Clear Day. And then let's listen to Barbara Streisand's... Barbara Streisand. ...original...
So there you are, that was the peddlers playing into Barbara Streisand. Now, all right, we're talking about Charles Chaplin. Now we're talking about um, music that people like because it was on Breaking Bad. And Barbara Streisand did this sort of weird 60s reincarnation musical that, that, that was um, a film of a successful Broadway show with Jack Nicholson in as kind of like the groovy, psychedelic hipster guy that she hangs out with on his rooftop and then she... Remembers the 18th century and have I got it wrong? Or is it Peter Ustinov as George it's the Third? It's either Peter Ustinov or Roy Kinnear. I or Robert remember. Morley. Robert Morley. It's one of Charles Grey, whoever's turn it was to be Prince Regent on that occasion. And the costume, the costumes all, all look like the cover off of Quality Street. Uh, the Quality Street tin, so... because it was that phase of the 60s where everything was going all sort of chiffony and floaty and Narini Dawn Porter. And apparently that's what Regency England looked like, was people getting ready for bed in 1969. Yes, gosh, it's a really bad film. But, like... So, this... You know, I often make these tenuous links. But, and there were two things we talked about uh, when we made the show about the immigrant at Christmas. That was our Christmas show. We're now talking about it in May. There were sort of two things that came out of that the show that you just heard um, one was people say about Charles Chaplin all sorts of things including oh well you know he was a great silent star but he never really made it into talkies well then why is it that actually the Charles Chaplin film which has had the most impact arguably of the last couple is The Great Dictator where he's got a speech it's him talking we played his speech from The Great Dictator at the end of the show that you just listened to well that of course was added to some Hans Zimmer music around the time of Occupy about six years ago oh it was Roy Kinnear yeah I was right you were right it was Roy I Kinnear. was wrong it's just Peter Snoff which was the Prince Regent so often bless him 
How many films did... Pre- pre- I'm not going to look that up. Richie Gustav played the Prince Regent in. Not enough. No. He should have been he should have been forced by some kind of bizarre edict of the Wilson government to always play the Prince Regent. Except when he was playing Nero. Yeah. He, some, somewhere he should be he should be sitting upright in a glass case in Brighton somewhere, just with a, a an endless tape playing of him being a raconteur about you know when he was sitting smoking cigars with Terence Stamp and and then um, Tiny Roland walks in and something else happened. Yes. I miss Peter Ustinov. I think if anyone could have been preserved as a, an AI for the rest of time, it probably Peter Ustinov gets the yeah. gets the popular vote for that. But that's a digression. So the cha- the Chaplin speech from the Great Dictator with the Hans Zimmer music added to it, yeah. which was, I remember going to that the sort of crap extra camp that the Occupy people did um, near um, Moorgate, uh-huh. and that was just someone had that playing on a plasma screen in this kind of weird, culty way. But it's Chaplin's speech, him talking, that's actually had some cultural yeah. momentum. Not him doing um, silent clowning and no. pantomime. And there's great pantomime in The Great Dictator. The the bit with the, bub- with the globe of the world is hilarious. But what you remember is not that. And it's certainly not the plot. Chaplin... Uh, wrote this song Smile without any lyrics to it but it was such a a cracking tune when people came along and added lyrics to it later it's Mm. got it's got this life and Streisand made um, a not particularly good film of an okay Broadway musical of On a Clear Day You Can See Forever Mm -hmm. but that song has its own life because of the peddlers because of being in Breaking Bad Streisand, another very interesting example of somebody who people kind of go, oh, well, you know, great singer, not really a great actor. Have you seen her films? She's fantastic. In some of them. Just her performance in What's Up, Dog. Yeah. That'll do for yeah. me. But Yentl, I like Yentl. Yeah. I like Yentl. Um, but then you've got things like Prince of Tides, <laughs> where she took a really rather good novel, which has a framing narrative... And threw almost everything but the framing narrative away because the framing narrative had a part for her. And, you know, was in that Meet the Fockers sequel. Jesus Christ. <gasps> Have some dignity. Well. And De Niro's done that Dirty Grandpa <gasps> film. I mean, oh. it's just, you don't want to see all these, these you know, godlike, scintillating presences of the, of the stage and screen descending into this. Dismal Sasha Baron Cohen hell of crude innuendo and just ill, just poorly thought out guff that should have Russell Brand in. I'm well, just saying. I'm just saying. Yeah, but even Russell Brand is too good for that. <laughs> so the the other thing before I we... mean because the, the what's the movie with um, Veronica Mars in on Russell Brand? Get into the Greek. No, the one before that. Oh, forgetting Sarah Marshall. Yeah, that's oh, not... that's terrific. Yeah, that's and good. Russell Brand's very good in that. Yeah, see. No, you're absolutely right. I am being a bit unfair to Russell. And and she's very good in it. Maybe stick to the acting, Russell. Yeah. Just a thought. Leave the politics alone because and and and, and, and the stand up and just just act. And you know, sleeping with groupies. Just leave. Just don't do that. Just do the acting. Just a thought, Russell. Yeah. If you're listening, yes. love love your work, but only the acting. Yeah. Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Nice film. 
It really is. Now, the other thing we talked about when we were talking about Charles Chaplin was kind of the state of the world and poverty and stuff like that. And we're making this in May before the general election. And it's our podcast, so we can talk about whatever we like. And you've got to, well, I suppose you can fast forward. You just, yeah. you just did. But if you didn't fast forward, I would like to talk about the election. And I would like to talk about the point you made to me yesterday, where you, I think, very crisply and very observantly put your finger on what is wrong with people laying into Jeremy Corbyn. And this kind of stems from... The reason I'm talking about this in relation to Charles Chaplin growing up in poverty in Oval, in yeah. South London, is really, have we come that far? Not very. Or we're going back. And it's that whole thing. We have a choice. We have this middlingly talented, quite nice rather boring Labour politician who doesn't want leopards to eat our faces. And we have everyone saying, oh, well, we don't want leopards to eat our faces, but better leopards eat our faces than Jeremy Corbyn. Why? Strong and stable leopards. And you go, well, he's, I mean, you know, he's not electable. Why isn't he electable? Well, because everyone wants leopards to eat their faces. Who says people want leopards to eat their faces? Well, everyone knows people want leopards to eat their face. And you go, this is just nonsense. So the reason that actually things have not really moved on that far from when a young Charles Chaplin was stuck in a workhouse with his brother and then went through the bins to find some food near... You know, in the show, you heard us talking to the lovely people who came along yeah. to our, our free film show in the street at Christmas. There was a day when he had no food and he went through the bins. Charles Chaplin. Yeah. That actually happened to somebody famous who managed to escape from poverty. But most people... Weren't Never able. escaped. And that was, you know, almost 100 years ago. Have things improved that much well, in that part of South London? Let alone for the rest of us? Little food bit. banks. Food banks. Now he's not got to go through the bins. You know, a future Charles Chaplin has to shuffle in shamedly into a Trussell Trust food bank and sort of awkwardly ask, can I have a tin of peas, please? Can I have more? And I was volunteering at a Trussell Trust food bank and it's heartbreaking. It really is very upsetting to see the way that people apologetically have people to kind of shuffle People who are in. working. People who are working full time. Architects. Middle class people who are so extended on their mortgage, on their credit cards, and they're ashamed. They're ashamed to ask for food. So the choice before us, you'll probably listen to this after the election, and Theresa May's one, let's face it. But before the election, if, you, if I get this done and it comes out before June the 10th, the choice before us is the Tories and more food banks or Corbyn's Labour. That's the choice. Yeah. The French have just made a choice between Macron, who, yeah, you know, he's a neoliberal and all those problems, or... An uh, actual Russian stooge fascist in Le Pen, that was the choice. The French made the right choice because having been occupied by a fascist power, they understand what... They what, remember. What, they remember. And we have forgotten. Why, why have people got this sort of self-indulgent attitude that... Oh, well, it's partly because everyone wants to be... People... Well, there are two things. One... One of the things 
I, I'm sorry to bang on about this. Oh, it's our podcast. We can yeah. bang on about it. It's the long-term consequences of new labour. It's the way that people just got sick and tired. Of, yes, new labour got did a lot of good things. I'm not disputing that. I was a beneficiary of some of those good things. But they didn't do anything to fix industrial policy. They borrowed money on this ridiculous Ponzi scheme of PPFI that was suggesting for the Treasury. They guess they built a lot of great plants that will be paying for by the compound interest for eternity. These are sc- schools and hospital buildings schools paid hospital. for under public-private partnership. And you will never own them. No. And it, in fact, I was working in Parliament at the time, and people on the Public Accounts Committee were saying, when they analysed the PPP, PFI deals, we're never, Britain's never going to be able to pay off the interest on this. They yeah. knew in 1998-99. And people aren't stupid. They knew that was... And um, what happened is everyone kind of thought, well, life is getting better because things can only get better, except sometimes they're going to get worse. And now suddenly everyone's telling them, giving them permission not to vote Labour. So this, these are the kind of proverbial white working class natural Labour voters who no one's listened to apparently for the last well, 20 you, years. And part of it is that they've projected a lot of that resentment into things that aren't very nice like racism and homophobia because they are a little bit racist a lot of them and a little bit homophobic partly because they they know things aren't really working and so they look for a reason and someone says well immigrants or are you know the government's more worried about about gays getting married than about you having a job i mean the reason that gordon brown lost has been sort of confused is that what actually Tony Blair and the people around Blair were doing in making fun of Gordon Brown was that he forgot to switch his mic off. Yeah. And he was then caught saying, why did you... He was, he was basically yeah. being uh, brisk with his staff and saying, why did you introduce me to that woman? She was some sort of racist woman. Well, you know, she kind of was, actually. Yeah. And in light of Joe Cox being murdered by a white, white nationalist, yeah. and in light of Brexit, Gordon Brown's words were actually quite prophetic. To be fair to Blair's people, they were making fun of how inept Gordon Brown was at media management, not turning his mic yeah. off. But then that got conflated into, oh, you're accusing this old woman of being a racist for criticising Polish people. Well, she was a racist. Yeah. And, and that was the result of people never making the tough, tough choice of saying to voters, sometimes we'll actually have a lot of people coming to the country because we need them to run things because... They're prepared to do horrible jobs in Sports Direct for no money with a bracelet on that goes bleep when they want a toilet break. Yeah. And you're not prepared to do that, so shut up. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's one reason. What's the other reason? The other reason is everyone's got to have a hot take on everything. Yeah, it's this kind of thing in social media of, you know, oh, but I just want to say, I read this thing, and what I think about it is this. Yeah, well, I mean, if this thing that isn't going to happen, like Labour ship, you know, the Labour running a leadership campaign tomorrow, 
and getting it over with tomorrow. So they've got Person X that we've never heard of, who's a much better Labour leader than Jeremy Corbyn, who'll win the election because they're not Jeremy Corbyn. And you go, but there is no such person and there is no such process and this is all nonsense. You have a choice. There's the one thing or the other thing. There's not this imaginary, possible, you know, impossible other thing that happens because you want it. And so, I mean, I'm not trying to sort of take us too much off the subject in hand, which is you know, the, the state of the country and the state of the world in terms of the social injustice that Charles Chaplin had to grow up with. But I, what I want to relate this to is a, something I feel very strongly, which is the difference between the world of the films of Charles Chaplin, the world which is embodied at the Cinema Museum, that great institution mm-hmm. in Oval. That great unfunded institution, which we will lose. If it's not funded properly, but we... Ros and I and this show and Resonance, we love that place dearly. Mm-hmm. It's one reason we went to make a show there is because it's so great. And we'll go again, if it's still there. That world of films, which are physical objects with physical machinery... Actually, which... we made two shows there. Yeah. So far. Yes, because we made Shem's show there. I mean, yeah. No, that's absolutely right. Um, it's, a, it's a world of physical film, celluloid film, of yeah. physical machines, projectors... All those things involve people. There are chains of employed people who used to look after the films and curry them from place to place, and then projectionists who put them through the machines, and people who maintain those machines. They are net, they are social networks of people. They are not virtual social networks which exist in some vague sense yeah. online. And for me, the difference between experiences of using the London Underground, experiences of going to the cinema, experiences of making and appreciating films to this day, especially physical films that you experience mm-hmm. in a real cinema on 35mm or 16mm with other people whom you don't know. Yeah. Just as if you travel on public transport with people whom you don't know and you manage to get on and off the bus without a race war starting, that's democracy in action. What worries me about what we're talking about, which is... Oh, well, let me just tell you another thing about Jeremy Corbyn. This is Jeremy Corbyn did this thing on press TV. and He did this thing on Iranian television. Did you see that? Here's a link. Oh, he's just, he's just got to go. He's rubbish. All that kind of thing, which if you're sitting tweeting away, yeah. which I'm as guilty of as anyone yeah, else. me too. Yeah, that, yeah. You know, hey, I've got a hot take on this thing. And have you seen this link? The problem is it's not mediated just by being in a room with other people who might just yeah. like, <clears throat> yeah, all right. Okay, you've said that now. Yeah. Settle down. We're watching the film. Yeah. That, that to me is the connection between what we talked about with Charles Chaplin and what we're talking about now which is the country's going fascist yeah and not as fast as America there's a thing which Chaplin says in the speech where he and I kind of actually cut away from it towards the end of that sequence because he does bang on a bit but he's talking to the soldiers and he's saying to the soldiers you know why are you why are you turning into machines why are you allowing yourselves to be led by people with machine minds and machine hearts? You're not machines, you're people. And although that part of Chaplin's speech doesn't quite ring true now because we're not living in a society where conscription is a thing, mm. uh, the, the military, it, certainly in Britain, I think less so in America, you know, because you're used to seeing members of the armed forces in America much more so than we are. Yeah. But I live next to an army base, so I'm acutely aware of it. I live next to an MOD base in in Fife. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we see soldiers all the time. They're part of our community. That point he's making about you are 
not machines, you are people. You are being led by people with machine minds and machine hearts. Cambridge Analytica. Yeah. Yes. And it's... The re- and people's hot take, oh well, I'm sure that doesn't really work. Well, if it doesn't work, why are people spending so much money on it? As is sometimes the case with these wonderful films which we showcase in these shows, we may have sort of explored Charlie Chaplin's The Immigrant to its fullest possible extent. Well, it's... We've talked for longer than the, the film. But it's often the... And I'm, I'm having this feeling at the moment with, um, with Twin Peaks, where I'm sort of living week to week for each episode of Twin Peaks. I'm quite pleased it's not all on Netflix or something where I can binge on it like I did with Luke Cage or with Jessica Jones. I'm living week to week through these dark times, these grim years which blend into each other. I mean, we're now into 16 years of dark times. This has gone on longer than World War One and World War Two combined. Yeah. Well. So Twin Peaks is keeping me going. But then I have... You know, after I've finished watching an episode, I have this feeling of, oh, well, that's over for another week. I know. I'll listen to the myriad of Twin Peaks podcasts. I mean, there are not just a lot of Twin Peaks podcasts. There are a lot of really good and interesting Twin Peaks podcasts. I find myself spending more time every week listening to people talking about Twin Peaks than all of season one and season two and the 18 hours by the time we get to the end of season three. Well... Did you ever feel when you were in full-on sort of Buffy scholar mode that you'd end up spending more time in some official capacity talking about Buffy than Buffy existed for? I managed to avoid that by writing about other things and not letting myself write about Buffy and Angel anymore. Was that... Because something I'm very interested by is the fact that you, since... Uh, we recorded the show about the immigrant you went to that lovely LGBT Doctor Who fan yes. convention and you were hanging out with Russell T Davis and Russell T Davis so only a little bit with Russell I talked to Boris Hussain quite a bit he was the guy who directed the first couple of episodes it of was indeed and um, Barnaby and the lovely people from Big Finish yes indeed Big up to Big Finish. Big, big love. Big love. Big love to Big Finish. If you aren't already listening to the fantastic Doctor Who audio plays that Big Finish produce and lots of other extraordinary content, they have a Sapphire and Steel show and Blake Seven and all these mm. wonderful um, heirlooms of British fantasy television. It's... They're, they're an utter delight and several of my friends work for them, so... It seemed to me that you were sort of accepted into that fraternity, really without sort of question. But you're not really a Doctor Who person, are I'm you? I'm not a Whovian. I, you know, it's a show that I've always liked and never loved. It's a show that I've drifted in and out of. It's a show where I, I saw the first episode and thought, OK, this will do. Um, and I watched it. I watched... All of the, all of the Hartnell, all of the Troughton era, most of the Pertwee era, though Pertwee was never my doctor. 
then I was pretty solidly loyal to Tom Baker. And then there are whole tranches of Tom Baker and Peter Davidson and McCoy, Sylvester McCoy, that I've never seen and don't especially care. And I've watched New Who, mostly. There are individual episodes I never got round to and don't feel heartbreak over. I have liked all of the doctors in New Who, um, particularly Tennant. But I like Capaldi, I liked Eccleston. Eccleston had one of my favourite Who lines ever. I mean... Which was? Lots of planets have a north. <laughs> but what, I've, what for me, as somebody who grew up with Doctor Who and is a fan of things like Twin Peaks and Riverdale's my current fan yeah. crush, love, love Riverdale, uh, is with all these things, whether it's Doctor Who or Archie Comics and Josie and the Pussycats or, as with music for films, this collection of 267 and counting films to do with London and London tube stops is there's always more. Yes. I mean, one of the problems I'm having is that just time for television. I mean, I've actually discovered the shows I really care about because there are shows I really love but I haven't binged. I've still got quite all of the new Twin Peaks to watch. I haven't watched more than one episode of Riverdale, though I liked it a lot. I I love Sensate, but there are, partly because I know there are never going to be any more of it. I've got... I've only watched up to episode eight of the new season. I still haven't watched Luke Cage. I certainly haven't watched Iron Fist. I plan to, but I don't know when I'll have the time. Whereas, when they dropped episodes of 12 Monkeys... You're there. I was there. Whoosh. Straight through. No question. And I religiously watch uh, iZombie every week. Now, I know iZombie is not as good a show as several of the ones I've mentioned, but it's a show I love. It's your show. It's one of my shows. Well, there are a lot of films on our Scala map. There are 267 and counting, and some of them are great movies. I think The Immigrant Chaplin's film that we were talking about in this show is one of them. But there are other films which are... Not great movies, they're just interesting. And to kind of provide you with some kind of overview guide, uh, we've written this audio essay, which I think we're also going to bring out as an audio book mm-hmm. and self-publish as like a PDF, so there's a little book to go with the show as well. I'm working on the book to go with this radio show, The Electric Notting Hill. But this is like a kind of a sampler, and this is Ros and I starting to tell the story of the Scala Map. It's an audio essay that we have entitled... What is crouching? And why does it end? An inspiration for the Scala Map was an interview with the French film historian, critic, curator and godfather of the film conservation movement worldwide, Henri Langlois. In Jacques Richard's 2004 documentary, Henri Langlois, The Phantom of the Cinematheque, answering an interviewer's questions in front of a screen onto which a Lumiere Brothers film is projected, Langlois says... My goal was to show shadows of the living coexisting with shadows of the dead. For that's the essence of cinema. It collapses time and space. It goes beyond the fourth dimension. With the silent black and white projected image distorted over his caramel cardigan, Langlois turns to face the screen. 
Here we see Seville in a fragment of reframed Lumiere film. It's a procession there in 1895, but that's not what counts. What matters is that these people are like us, and as they walk, we walk along. So the audience is right there with them. So it's like early news reporting? You call it news, but it's much smarter than that, because news reports are rarely intelligent. They go about filming a head of state or a horse or whatever, whereas these scenes live and breathe. It's real life, which mere news as we know it can't capture. Langlois pauses. He gestures with his cigarette to indicate the passage of time as he chooses his next thought. He's been smoking the whole way through the interview. Did we mention French? Call it super duper news reporting. Only cinema can do this. Capture shadows as flickering, fluttering, moving images. Moths in an illuminated jar. Chiaroscuro and technicolour ghosts trapped in amber for eternity. Not only how people in those moments looked, but people's emotions in those moments as well. We are the first generation of human beings who can look back into our great-grandparents' lives. We can see the gaze in people's eyes a century ago as they look out at us as well into an uncertain future. All the inventions of cinema, the mechanisms for capturing and creating moving images, the habit and cultures of cinema going, the buildings, the business and marketing of film, the movie magazines... The bodies of film appraisal and criticism, the badges, toys, brochures and song booklets, the film archives, the libraries of DVDs, in public buildings, in colleges, in people's homes, the files on computers and handheld digital devices, the cosplay, the assemblages of images, film scores and lines of dialogue stored in people's heads. All of this collecting, organising, cherishing of the interconnected past, present and the future, of the personal and the political, is an intentional effort by billions of people. Almost all human beings love cinema. I love you. I know. We will not break this friendship. I will be by your side to my last breath. Conservative by nature, labour by experience. Play it, Sam. As a cultural expression, as an art form, cinema comprises all the other expressive forms. Music, literature, drama, sculpture, visual art, design, costume and fashion, and the sciences too, especially chemistry and engineering. These forms of human expression transcend race, religion and nationality. Arguably, the only thing missing from a century or more of movies is a good film about football, Though there's a film about a murder during a friendly game of footy on the Scala map, 1939's The Arsenal Stadium Mystery. Leslie, this is Inspector Slade. How do you do? How do you do? You'd be the nearest man to Dice when he fell, wouldn't you? Yes, I was, Tom. Can you tell us what happened? When he had the ball, I rushed forward to tackle him. Just as I got there, tumbled and fell to the ground. What did he look like? He was sweating badly and looked very grey. Grey? Yes, he looked terrible. Terrible. More importantly, cinema transcends blogs, tweets, news op-ed columns and opinions because films are stories, not seminars. Opinions are rarely intelligent. 
Stories live and breathe because they're about more than two people. There is more than an author and a reader in a story, there is also at least one character. Call stories super-duper opinions. Multi-viewpoint stories are as old as stories themselves, but in the age of mass production, of words and then of moving images, Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities and Great Expectations were among the first efforts to depict a city or a community as a complex system of interrelated personalities and emotions. On the Scala map, the David Lean film of Great Expectations, regarded widely as one of the most faithful adaptations of Dickens, is at Chancery Lane. In the 1860 novel, Pip, played by John Mills in the film, takes up lodgings in Barnard's Inn, despite having been a blacksmith's apprentice. Mr Pip? Mr Pocket? Oh dear me, I'm extremely sorry, but the fact is I've been out on your account, for I thought coming from the country you might like a little fruit, and I went to Covent Garden Market to get it good. Well, thank you. It's very nice of you. Can I take the parcels? It sticks, you know. Pray come in. Now, this is the sitting room. Rather musty, but Barnard's is musty. This reflects the fact that the area around Chancery Lane, while associated with the Inns of Court, was a far more socially fluid area in Dickens' time than the well-appointed buildings may suggest. Cinema is a team effort by humanity, but the wealth to fund most of these inventions in the second half of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th centuries came from the last proceeds of Victorian imperialism. The legacy of cinema technology and culture began in Britain and in France. It was then transferred to and perfected in America, Germany, Argentina, British-run India, the USSR and elsewhere. This is a mixed inheritance, but the benign aspect of this rolling process of recording people's lives over 100 years, the ability that the whole human race now has to travel emotionally in time and space through movies, for moments to exist now and forever, as an inheritance which the peoples of Britain and France should revel in. And they do. Another team effort over the last century was the global resistance of fascism. Langlois, the impractical romantic, falling asleep on the steps to his own museum, projecting films in the stairwell when the screening rooms in the Cinematheque were full, scared of his wife but bewitched by their strange mother-son sadomasochistic relationship, I did say French. Langlois, with his hair and his cigarette and the cake crumbs down his cardi, was also a resistance fighter. By saving the physical print of the Blue Angel, Langlois not only fought fascism by subverting its cultural vandalism, he fought for a common humanity by preserving its relics as well. His valour was not only intellectual but also physical. Langlois took possession of the cans of Joseph von Sternberg's film, an act which in German-occupied Paris risked imprisonment or death. A collective European effort to resist fascism and to overcome other tyrannies over a century of cinema is present and correct on the Scala map. At Woodford, where her daughter Sylvia lived in sin, causing her to break off ties, suffragist and campaigner for women's rights, Emmeline Pankhurst, addresses the camera directly about the need for votes for women in 80 Million Women Want. Beau Road is suffragette, with Meryl Streep playing Emmeline and Helena Bonham Carter 
as activist Edith knew. We are fighting for a time in which every little girl born into the world will have an equal chance with her brothers. Never underestimate the power we women have to define our own destinies. We do not want to be lawbreakers. We want to be lawmakers. Daughter Sylvia Pankhurst became active in the socialist self-help movement in the East End, particularly in Bow. Sylvia helped set up a free milk service for mothers and kids and a cut-priced cafe from the disused Gunmaker's Arms pub in 1915. <laughs> How far we've come in a hundred years. And on through two world wars. On release during the Second World War in 1943, the life and death of Colonel Blimp suggested that the enemy could be human, decent, and that war by any means may not be justified by the end result of victory. The Home Guard at KHQ in Blimp is 138 Park Lane near Hyde Park Corner, whereas put on the map. For its sympathetic view of a German officer, Anton Walbrook, and his friendship over several decades with a British officer, Roger Livesey, the film was protested in London. Its release was delayed in the USA. What's going on here? Invasions. But war starts at midnight. Oh, yes, you say war starts at midnight. How do you know the enemy says so, too? But, my dear fellow, that was agreed, wasn't it? Agreed, my foot. How many agreements have been kept by the enemy since this war started? We agreed to keep to the rules of the game, and they go on kicking us in the pants. When I joined the army, the only agreement I entered into was to defend my country by every means at my disposal, not only by the National Sporting Club rules, but by every means that have existed since Cain slugged Abel. Stop it. Don't we know that they're counting on us to keep to the rules? Stop that it. That they openly boast about it? That they laugh Stop at us? Stop it! Lieutenant Watson, or whatever your name is, you are not in Hyde Park with an audience of loafers. I am Major General Wynn Candy. These other gentlemen have all seen service, distinguished service with the British Army. All I can say, sir, that when Napoleon said that an army marched on its stomach, I better stop, sir. You're an extremely impudent young... Partly shot at Hornchurch in The Lion Has Wings, 1939, Rafe Richardson stars as a pilot in a hastily made Alexander Corder production which convinced the British government of the value of film as wartime propaganda. The American distribution of London Can Take It in 1940 is often credited with having helped to make the case for America to enter the war against fascism by depicting the impact of German bombing on the civilian population. The King and Queen are seen surveying bomb damage. The narrator, US war correspondent Quentin Reynolds, doesn't comment on them. Their status is depicted as being equal to any other Londoners caught in the Blitz. But London is fighting back. I am a neutral reporter. I have watched the people of London live and die ever since death in its most ghastly garb began to come here as a nightly visitor five weeks ago. I have watched them stand by their homes. I have seen them made homeless. I have seen them move to new homes. And I can assure you, there is no panic, no fear, no despair in London town. There is nothing but determination, confidence, and high courage among the people of Churchill's Island. And they know 
that every night the RAF bombers fly deep into the heart of Germany, bombing munition works, airplane factories, canal, cutting the arteries which keep the heart of Germany alive. It is true that the Nazis will be over again tomorrow night and the night after that and every night. They will drop thousands of bombs and they'll destroy hundreds of buildings and they'll kill thousands of people. But a bomb has its limitations. It can only destroy buildings and kill people. It cannot kill the unconquerable spirit and courage of the people of London. London can take it. Though many senior military figures doubted that fascist Germany planned to mount an amphibious assault on the British mainland in the summer of 1940, Winston Churchill headed a coalition government and thought otherwise. His plan to repel the advancing German army in the low countries of Europe had failed with the humiliation of the British Expeditionary Force, and the prospects looked grim. Chalfont St Giles doubled as Warmington on sea in Dad's Army on television in the two original movies. The Home Guard of Volunteers is depicted in Dad's Army, which on television went on for three years longer than World War II, can be figures of fun because the invasion never went ahead. In the early 70s, Britain still faced civil emergencies, social upheaval and the threat of nuclear annihilation. Dad's Army was tea time's primal screen therapy for the nation. Fallout is dust that is sucked up from the ground by the explosion. Fallout can kill. Nobody can tell where the safest place will be. So, stay where you are. If you leave your home, your local authority may take it over for homeless families. And if you move, the authorities in the new place will not help you with food, accommodation or other essentials. You are better off in your own home. Stay there. Peter Watkins, 1965 BBC drama documentary The War Game, depicting Britain under nuclear attack was withdrawn before transmission under government pressure because it's so realistic It's on the Scala map at Caledonian Road near Houseman's Bookshop which became a focus for the campaign for nuclear disarmament Quota Quickie, that kind of girl, 1963 made at Twickenham Studios near to where it is on the map at Richmond Station, is a warning of the perils of contracting a sexually transmitted disease, which includes footage of a banner bomb march to Aldermaston. Eager for life and laughter, she swings with a footloose and uninhibited youth of today. You will meet Linda, another kind of girl. You must have thought about it. Thought about what? Well, sex. She wanted marriage. He couldn't wait. Kevin Brownlow and Alan Mollow wrote, produced and directed It Happened Here over eight years, imagining an alternate history where the fascist invasion of the UK, planned in 1940, went ahead. Filming in Chester Terrace near Regent's Park, War Minister John Profumo sent his butler out to inquire why a Nazi marching band was going past his front door. This is London, and these are its people. People with one great and common purpose, to pay tribute to the achievements in their country of National Socialism. 
To this, the first big public display since the army landed, come people from many miles around the metropolis. Filmed at Denham Studios in Buckinghamshire in A Matter of Life and Death in 1946. Doomed airman David Niven survives the crash of his bomber due to a clerical error in heaven and has a second chance at life and love. RAF Northolt was the base for the Polish Air Force in the Battle of Britain. Poles are among the airmen seen filing into heaven to collect their wings. Come on, fellas, break it up, spread out here. Boom and back. Oh, uh, do you have your socials here? No, we don't. Okay, we'll stay. Officer squadrons, of course. We're all the same up here, Captain. Excuse me, brother. On the Scala map, the films at nearby Ricelip Garden Station. After the war, rebuilding, especially public housing, was a pressing social issue in the capital as it remains to this day. Ken Loach shot Cathy Come Home around Camden on 60mm for the BBC's Wednesday play. Cathy, Carol White and Reg, played by Ray Brooks, are young parents. After Reg is injured at work, they lose their home and everything falls apart. Cathy ends up homeless and social services take her kids away. When I first came here... We never had none of this lot. We never had no children in here. This was only for a married couple or one on their own. No children. You had ladies here then. There was rats under the floorboard and I had the council down to take the floorboards all up and put all poison down for the rat. And they said that definitely rats have been there, but they've probably gone somewhere else to annoy somebody else. Like It's been called an ice pick in the brain of all who saw it. The impact of Cathy Come Home on audiences was immense. The play was discussed in Parliament. Loach points out that in fact very little changed as a result of its broadcast. Rules were altered so men were allowed to stay in hostels with their wives and kids. Almost half a century later, a Cambridge University study in 2015 estimates that 83,000 young people are homeless in the UK, three times the official government figures. Camden, pubs, theatres and cinemas appear frequently in the cinema of the 60s and 70s as symbols of urban decay, and of Victorian Edwardian splendour. In Radio 1, 1979, Robert David Beams lives over the Plaza Cinema that was at 211 Camden High Street. The disused Bedford Theatre seen in Catholic Come Home also appears in the James Mason documentary The London Nobody Knows, 1969. Poor Cow, 1967, Ken Loach's first feature film, starring Carol White, Terence Stamp and John Binden, is about the bad choices and difficult life of an 18-year-old mum from South London. There are exterior shots of Plough Road and Cologne Road near Southfields Tube Station, a reminder of how much of London remained bombed, damaged and run down 20 years after the Blitz. Why film about radicals, underworlds and countercultures, though? The music critic and author, Charles Shaw Murray, has described the counterculture as the endlessly rejuvenating and replenishing bed that feeds the mainstream culture. A thesis which arises from this collection of radical, transgressive, occasionally transgendered films, which ran contrary to the then accepted mainstream thinking of the time, is of an electric London. Harry Beck's design for the London Tube Map is based on an electrical circuit diagram. From the complexity of Edwardian attempts to visualise an underground rail network, which by the 30s was connecting the city to Metroland, the urban and suburban to the countryside, Beck the engineer created a beautifully simple vision of London as an integrated system. Straight and diagonal lines, ticks for stations, and circles for connections at stations. 
transformed a representation of the metropolis from the bewildering Bolognese of commuter routes of the earlier attempts to map the underground system into a mandala for the common man and woman. Though often overlooked by them in his lifetime, Transport for London now recognises the understated brilliance of Harry Beck, the high modernist. Since his death, Beck's designs have become rightly lionised and the basis for most subway maps across the world. As English as tuppence, and as legible as the Pilgrim's Progress, Beck's transformation of London as an idea was as literal for the city's congregants as the progression had been from the Latin Mass to the King James Bible after the Protestant Revolution. In the sense that Inigo Jones thought of architecture as an idea, for there was an English Renaissance ideal of an intellectually contingent and cohesive built environment expressed in Jones's buildings, and foremost in his Whitehall Banqueting Palace opposite Downing Street, the first structure to be built in England in a classical idiom after the Roman withdrawal from Britain in the 6th century of the Common Era. Before, between and after the wars, through the films on the Scarlet Map, one can see demimons emerging, congregations migrating through the night to conspire, in the literal sense of breathing together, at the movies. Electricity made it possible to travel across the city, the electric light in the form of street lighting, lights in shop windows and then, arguably the last machine of the machine age, motion picture projection, drew people together to participate in audiences, catalyzing popular trends as box office receipts. The electric guitar boosted the signal of kids in the suburbs, not only in a hard day's night help and performance, but in lesser known cop and pop flicks like Dateline Diamonds and Live It Up. By the 60s, these converging and commingling confluences of ideas and of humanity became a single, thundering, underground stream which raged on through the 70s and 80s, as seen in films like Breaking Glass, Rude Boy and The Filth and the Fury. By the 90s, having avoided catching HIV-AIDS from an iceberg, with the prospect of nuclear Armageddon receding and with psychedelics once again to the fore, this rambunctious underground stream dwindled to a pilled-up burble of cautiously multicultural, vaguely liberal hedonism. This era was typified more by unfilmed and unfilmable cultural artefacts which didn't make it onto the Scala map than ones which did. The tepidly anarchic Brick Lane scene of not especially young British artists and middle-class crusties mingling with Bengali shop owners' kids. Zadie Smith's white teeth. Train spotting to find the era, but it's set in Edinburgh, even if Renton's flat was filmed at 78A Telgarth Road, West London, between Barons Court and West Kensington tube stations. The Cyberdelia nightclub scene in 1995's Hackers was filmed in Brentford Bath's Clifton Road near Kew Gardens tube station. But by the mid-90s it had more to do with its American setting in the DNA lounge in San Francisco than it did with crusties with smart drinks in the chill-out areas at Megatripolis and Escape from Samsara in London. Much of this meandering mid-90s period is recorded in Rachel Lichtenstein's book with Ian Sinclair, Rodinsky's Room, like the cultural thrall of rough trade records in the early 80s, when white Rastafarianism and rip rig and panic were also a thing, the light of invention had receded beneath the surface a long way down the tunnel. No cinematic record of the cultural moment exists. It's unclear whether the disruptive technology of the internet and social media is the fourth manifestation of electricity as a countercultural force in London. A tent city outside St Paul's Cathedral during the Occupy protests in 2012, following a global financial collapse, led to a lot of very nice free lunches for city workers, but not much else. The atomising individualistic nature of digital communication, as with watching a movie on your laptop or your phone, 
is personal rather than political in any meaningful sense. A defining image of London's radicalism in 2016 could be Labour's then deputy leader, Tom Watson, a white man wearing white trousers in a muddy field in Glastonbury at a silent disco for people who still possess white earbud earphones to denote their iPhone ownership, while elsewhere a coup was being mounted by his friend, the Shadow Foreign Secretary. I should just add that if you're listening, Tom, it's about now that, as I once said in Twitter, you can fuck off. (laughs) Oh, Ross. (laughs) You wouldn't let it lie, would you? No, absolutely not. Warm beer, middle age, revisiting misspent youth at the weekend, prepared to sling mud around so long as none of it touches your zone of privilege and your white shorts, dancing to the tune in one's own head, but convinced every individualistic act is somehow shaking up the establishment. Watson had remained in the Labour Party after the election of it to its leadership of an earnest geography teacher in a fisherman's cap, Jeremy Corbyn, while television comedian Robert Webb had franced off several months earlier. Until 2016, Webb had starred in Channel 4's Peep Show, in which apparently pointless, straight, 40-something Caucasian men with persistent drug habits were, unaccountably, able to indefinitely extend a slacker lifestyle. This lifestyle mostly revolved around their parvenu musical ambitions and getting in and out of bed with a succession of attractive women a decade or so younger than the pallid and pudgy, mainly male, protagonists. Watson and Webb are both products of the post-war dispensation. University degrees without tuition fees, easy but unfulfilling summer jobs funding lonely planet sojourns in poorer, much poorer countries, the National Health Service, affordable mortgages in the southeast of England where they chose finally to settle down, late night slots on Channel 4 where alternative comedy had once filled the hinterland between getting back from the pub and blurry somnolence. By 2016, working class men like Webb and Watson, who'd gone through their vision quests on MDMA, speed and cocaine at manumission in resorts like Ibiza and Goa in northern India. Then, in their mid-forties, they hoisted up the ladder behind them, consigning younger generation to a future of zero-hours contracts and never being able to afford their own home. As Mitchell and Webb said in a sketch that became probably their most iconic moment on social media and YouTube, Do you think we're the bad guys? Hans, I've just noticed something. These communists are all cowards. (laughs) Have you looked at our caps recently? Our caps? Have you noticed that our caps have actually got little pictures of skulls on them? (laughs) I don't, sir. Hans, are we the baddies? Watson's solitary rave at Glastonbury Music Festival coincided with England's decision to leave the European Union. This sparked a coup to remove Corbyn, in which Watson plotted from behind the scenes, and a five-hold increase in racial attacks, though not in Scotland, which voted to remain, and where the increase in hate crimes was zero. The Remain vote in the British capital won in 28 London boroughs with 2.2 million votes, only Barking and Dagenham, Bexley, Sutton, Havering and Hillingdon voted for Brexit. Having returned an Urdu-speaking Muslim mayor from Tooting only weeks before, multicultural London 
finds itself hostage to the whims of the mostly white, mostly male, 90s-style key opinion formers who no longer run what, with the advent of an all-night tube service, will be a 24-hour or was on Global City. They are still on your internets, bugging out the secret Weezer gig in their heads. And all your base will belong to them. Our podcast is More Music for Films, and you can find it on thebeekeepers.com or your podcasting application of choice. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.